we are in the midst of a crack of boom. When you're just printing and spending that much money, you are going to de depreciate the currency and not necessarily depreciating the currency against other currencies, but depreciate it against assets. There is a real risk that going forward, there's going to be you know, less confidence in uh, the U.S. government. Okay, so let's start off with kind of your overall macro view, because I haven't spoken with you in probably, I mean, at least six months. So what's kind of fresh on your mind? So what I think is happening right now is we are in the midst of a crack up boom. And as your readers may be familiar with, a crack up boom is basically when the uh, asset markets appreciate because the currency is depreciating. Now, when I'm thinking about the crack up boom, I'm not really thinking about the Fed. As we all know, the Fed has tremendous influence, but at the end of the day, it's the commercial banks that create money, but also, but also uh, the, the government when it uh, issues debt. Because in the modern financial system, treasury securities are very much money-like assets. And so what I'm seeing is that the U.S. Treasury, the U.S. Congress, uh, the federal government is basically going to uh, be spending trillions and trillions of dollars forever. So recently, this, the Congressional Budget Office, the CBO, which is the agency that makes forecasts on these things, they came out and they came out with a forecast. And they're saying that, you know, from now until basically forever, uh, the fiscal deficit is going to be about 5% of GDP. Now, this, I think, is a really big paradigm shift and why the future will not look like the past. In the past, we always had all these people talking about the deficit, how it's too big, we got to be careful, and so forth. But all those guys are gone now. Now, the CBO is a government agency, and it's obligated to make projections based on current law. So all they do is they look at what's been passed and make a projection based on that. But as we all know, uh, you know, the law changes all the time. So what I think is more useful is just to look at the culture that we're in. Right. And I think we're in a political culture where, one, uh, people like free stuff, right? I think about how happy people are to have their student loans forgiven. Think about how happy the Congress is to spend billions and billions of dollars on foreign adventures and military spending. You don't even have to believe. You can just look at uh, the fiscal deficit over the past few decades, and it just goes up. Now, when I look at the, uh, so I've been looking at the projections in detail, and what's really interesting is that, so the structural 5% fiscal deficit, it's going higher, largely due to two things. One, of course, is Social Security and Medicare, which we all know we have an aging population, and as all the boomers age, they're going to be uh, collecting Social Security, they're going to have higher medical costs, so that's a structural increase in federal spending. That's well understood. Another thing that's well understood is interest expense. As many people have noted, you know, we have a large uh, stock of debt. And as interest rates go higher, well, that interest expense is going to rise too. That's one thing. Now, the third thing that's interesting in this projection and why it's only 5% deficit is that it projects that the discretionary part of the fiscal deficit, well, it's going to trend towards multi-decade lows. Now, that doesn't make any sense, right? right. How, how could we have one category of fiscal spending trend towards multi-decade lows. Well, uh, that's that's what they have to project because it's based on current law. So discretionary spending is broken down into two categories. One is military spending and the other is non-military. Now, it, military spending, it ebbs and flows a lot with uh, geopolitical conflict. It was very large during the Cold War. 
rose again during the Iraq war and has declined since. But it looks like we're heading into a world where there's more geopolitical conflict and we see right. that on the news every day. So I think that's not going to decrease. But the worst, let's just assume it stays where it's been the past few years. Now, the second thing, part of discretionary spending is basically everything else. Uh, it's the government payroll, it's uh, education, it's stuff like that. And, you know, I, it looks like the government is creating a lot of jobs. It looks like a lot of people want free student loans. It looks like a lot of people want to spend money on climate change stuff, you know, like the Inflation Reduction Act. So I think that's going to have to go up, too. So when you just assume that the discretionary part, again, three parts of the government uh, budget, discretionary, uh, mandatory and interest expense, now, if you just assume that the discretionary part just stays around where it is right now as a percent of GDP, then you're looking at a fiscal deficit that's about 7% of GDP going forward. Right. Now, that is, of course, terrible for the republic. But, you know, when you're just printing and spending that much money, you are going to de depreciate the currency and not necessarily depreciating the currency against other currencies because everyone else is doing more or less the same thing, but depreciate it against assets. And so we see home prices rise. We see the equity market go to the moon, although I think that we are a bit too hot right now. But I think that's the big game plan uh, for the next few years. Now, that also has direct impacts on the economy, of course. On, for, on the economic front, I think that we, we're not going to go into, I think we're going to probably have a you know stagnant economy. We're going to grow, but not by a lot. And inflation is going to remain higher uh, than than uh, than it has before the pandemic. So maybe uh, let's say four percent, three four percent inflation going forward and lower economic growth. It's not going to be super painful, but it's not going to feel good. Right. So now, correct me if I'm wrong, but those projections do not include a recession. Oh yeah. If there's no if there's a recession, that that spending is going to go through the roof. It's going to explode <laughs> higher. And uh, and we're so listen. Uh, I don't think a recession is imminent, but it is inevitable. It's part right. of life, right? It's the right. business cycle. It's like death and taxes. So when we get a recession, I'm I'm sure that we're going to spend even more money. And listen, uh, we spent a lot of money in COVID, for example, and, and that stock market like that uh, liked it a lot. And of course, we, we spent a lot of money after the great financial crisis, and there was a shock afterwards. But uh, for several years after, it, it kind of boomed in the when you're looking at financial assets. Joseph, can you give us some historical context on the 5% deficit to GDP or the 7%? Those are just numbers for most people. Yeah, yeah. So, so when you say that's high, they're like, well, I, I have nothing to compare it to. Yeah, that's a great point. So I would look at it first in a cultural perspective. So culturally speaking, historically speaking, we, we had a culture where uh, people understood that it's not good for the government to continue to spend money. And that's actually ingrained in the DNA of our country, because what made the U.S. special compared to many other countries is that at its founding, the founding fathers wanted a country to be, wanted the government to be very small. Mm -hmm. Because if the government would be very small, it would not have a lot of power. Uh, it would not be able to potentially abuse its power because the government is different from other entities, right? It has an army. And so it has a lot of power over people. We want to be careful uh, to make sure that it doesn't grow too powerful because you know, government is ultimately run by people and there's always the temptation to abuse that power. So throughout our history, the government actually has been historically, uh, deficit ha has been very small because simply there wasn't anything to spend it on. You didn't have the right to spend it on anything. In fact, um, say 100, 100 years ago, um, well, okay, 
200 years ago, the government, uh, federal government was so weak. You, uh, when cars first came out, okay, so in the 1900s, uh, the government actually did not have the power to mandate seatbelts because they, they, it just wasn't in their jurisdiction. Now, it's very different today, of course. So historically speaking, the government had a very small deficit. Now, during war times, it would expand tremendously. We saw that, uh, for example, during World War II, existential crises. So uh, you had a lot of spending. Um, but normally, you never, when times are good, you never see a fiscal deficit uh, where it is today, let's say 6%. Now, that's, that's, that just doesn't happen. And in fact, 20 years ago, we even had a fiscal surplus. Right. What that meant was that the government actually took in more in taxes than it spent uh, in its operations. And back then, the people—I I feel like it was such a, you know, such a innocent time. But the government was like, "We have all this extra money. Uh, let's try to save money for the taxpayers." And so, uh, what they did was they went out and they bought high-yielding treasuries uh, and retired the debt, bought it back because they didn't want to pay the high interest expense to try to save the taxpayer some interest expense. Mm. Now, that that's that that time is just so far away from where we are today, where just everything is spend, spend, spend. That's how people get elected, right? They buy votes using someone else's money. How they spend money really depends on, you know, uh, maybe some people want to spend it by giving money to corporations. Maybe some people want to spend it by giving money to, um, you know, education, free student loans and stuff like that, childcare, but it's the same thing. It's just about spending money. So uh, it's a big anomaly and we've never had a persistent fiscal deficit like this before. Uh, that just, that's forecast to forever increase, never before. Right. Okay. So let's go into some nuance because you're talking about one of the results from these deficits exploding and continue going higher and higher and higher is going to be a tailwind to consumer price inflation. Right. Now, most people would assume that that is because the Fed is expanding their balance sheet because interest rates are going up. There's not enough demand for treasuries. They can't handle the interest rates. So they're, quote unquote, monetizing the debt. And this is uh, the, the Fed's balance sheet is somehow uh, in turn creating more currency units in the real economy, chasing the same amount of stuff. But I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. But based on some of the conversations that we've had online and face-to-face -face over dinner, uh, I think you come at it more from a standpoint of the government spending itself increasing velocity or increasing the aggregate balance sheet in society as opposed to what the Fed is doing by, let's just say, an asset swap. And, and that's a very, very important distinction. So can, can you explain your views on that a little further? So rather than focus on the Fed, which, as, as you note, I think of as an asset swap, which is impactful, but not nearly as impactful as fiscal uh, deficit spending itself. Right. Now, um, let's go through an example. Now, let's suppose that, uh, George, you're an investor and you have $100 in your bank account. Now, I'm the government. Okay. So I want to spend money. So what do I do? I go and I borrow it. So I issue you $100 in U.S. Treasuries, and you give me $100 in deposits, right? So at the end of the day, instead of having $100 uh, in your checking account, you have $100 in Treasury securities. Now, at the end of this transaction, George, your net worth, your purchasing power is unchanged. That's right. However, let's say I'm the government. I took 
the, your dollars and I spent it back into the economy. In fact, uh, since you're the only person in this hypothetical, I spent it right back to you. I, I you're a missile, you're, you're an arms dealer and you sold me missiles. So I, I gave you a hundred dollars and you gave me missiles. Okay. So what does that mean? So at the end of the day, you have your hundred dollars back because you sold me a missile and you have a hundred dollars in treasury securities. Your assets are now $200. You have more purchasing power. Exactly. So it's the creation of the treasury itself that creates uh, basically a, a money-like asset. Now, it's not exactly money. It's not like you know, cash in your wallet where you, can go and, uh, where you can go and spend it at Denny's, at McDonald's. But you can easily say, you know, you have $100 of treasuries in your Schwab account. You can easily sell it. And then you have deposits that you can withdraw. It's very much money-like. So the government is special in that it can create these, print these money-like assets, uh, and it does so to the tune of trillions of dollars a year. So that I think of as the real money printing that is impactful for financial assets and the real economy. What the yeah, Fed like, does is we'll also ahead. important, but I think the fiscal a- the fiscal aspect uh, at the moment is more important. Yeah, and I'd also add that when I gave you that that uh, $100 and you gave me that treasury, that $100 most likely didn't come out of my checking account. It most likely came out of my savings account or else I would not have used that. If I if I need that money to pay for rent, I would not have used that money to buy a treasury, right? Because I can't take that treasury down to Chipotle. Right, so right. My, my, my point there is you're taking very low velocity money, if not zero velocity money, which is pretty much what a treasury is. And you're turning it into high velocity money, uh, even if it's going to the exact same person. Well, so, absolutely. Yeah. Now think about it from a big, big system wide scale. Who are the people who buy treasury securities? Honestly, I don't think it's a retail investment. I think it's an institutional investment, especially if you have a lot of money. Maybe if right. you have a billion dollars. If you have a billion dollars, well, listen, you can't really just put that at your local bank. Your bank might go bust. So you have to go and put it somewhere else. Let's say you put it in treasury securities, safe, and you get a little bit of interest. And so, you know, the really rich people, that has that's low velocity money, as you know. So they give, they take that uh, they take that low velocity money by treasuries. U.S. Treasury takes that, and what do they do with it? They they spend it right. Now it's it could be to uh, it could be to Social Security. It could be to payments to doctors. It could be to uh, payment to people who are under economic hardship. Uh, but but it's going to be spent to people who have higher velocity of money. Right? They're not going to be super rich. Uh, the super rich. Maybe they get some government contracts and stuff like that. But yeah, overall, the velocity of money is, of that money is going to increase. How do you think the type of government spending impacts velocity, therefore inflation? So as an example, if Janet Yellen just borrows money to give someone a Social Security payment that stays within the United States, that's probably additional currency units chasing goods and services based on the process we just explained. But what if Janet Yellen takes that $100 and she gives it to Ukraine? Now, all of a sudden, those dollars are outside of the United States. Who knows when they come back in and they're not circulating, chasing goods and services. So I think if we really want to get technical and if we want to be as accurate as we can be, the viewer should also analyze not just the deficit, but what they're spending money on. Absolutely. Absolutely. That would be a very refined model. 
um, to, to, be, to better understand how this works. And sometimes the money does go abroad. As you know, we are we have military bases all over the world. There are military conflicts all, all over the, the world. Uh, and so some of that money does get spent, um, you know, abroad, and that circulates into in the offshore dollar market and uh, basically becomes far, part of foreign commerce. Uh, international trade is largely conducted in dollars, and so it could flow uh, from foreign country to foreign country and not necessarily have to come back to the U.S. Right, exactly. So let's also hit on a point that you made, and I hear... I don't know if you know this gentleman. His name is Mon Mohan Singh. Hopefully I'm getting that right. And yeah, he's of course. Mon Mahon Singh. Yeah. Yeah. He's with the IMF. I, I don't know if you know him yep. personally or you know of him, but he's come out with uh, a book. I believe it's called Money and Collateral. And he also has a working paper that he did with uh, Peter Stella or Paul Stella. Peter um, Stella. I know it, Peter personally. I don't okay. know Mohammed Mohammed personally. Okay, so I'm actually reading that paper, but uh, you know he talks a lot about collateral, which is something that Snyder talks about all the time. But he takes it to uh, the next level. <laughs> I mean, he takes it to ten levels uh, more extensive than even Snyder takes it. But what he talks about all the time is the moneyness, and that's that's the word he uses: the moneyness of treasuries compared to bank reserves. Now, most of you know, uh, most of the viewers know exactly who you are, but if, if they don't, you know, Joseph used to work at the Fed, hence Fed guy, and he was on the New York Fed's trading desk. So he's got an intimate understanding of how the, the plumbing works. Now, uh, Mr. Singh's argument there is the reason that treasuries might have even more moneyness than reserves is because the pipes, there's more pipes going to entities that can use treasuries and there's fewer pipes going to entities that can use bank reserves. You know, he's and, absolutely right. Can you explain that a little bit further? Because I think that is crucially important to the next thing I want to talk about, or one of the things I wanted to talk about, which is this debt crisis, uh, which is basically there's never going to be any more demand for treasuries relative to supply. Yeah. So Mahoman and Mahoman is the IMF's repo expert and Peter, he retired from the IMF, but before he retired, he's one of the senior people there as well. And they have a very good knowledge of this. So I think it's to understand this. I think it's helpful to think about the world through the lens of an institutional investor or someone who's really rich. Now, if you are, you know, like most other, you know, retail um, you know, if you have money, you put it in the bank, end of story. You don't have to worry about it anymore. The bank is where you keep your money. You feel like it's safe and liquid. But if you have a lot of money, say you are a billionaire or you manage a billion dollars, you really can't think like that because you put a billion dollars in the bank. Maybe it's Silicon Valley Bank and you don't lose, you lose a lot of it. So exactly. uh, you have to think about, you have to think about credit risk in a different way. Now in the global financial system, uh, only the government is going to be credit risk-free because the government has a printing press. It's not going to default. Now, when you're thinking about uh, holding government liabilities, uh, there's two things that you can think of as credit risk-free. One, of course, is a liability of the Fed. That's a reserve. The other is a liability of the U.S. government. That is a U.S. Treasury security. Now, reserves are basically uh, deposits at the Fed. 
So it's so just like uh, I can go and open a checking account at JP Morgan. So I'll have deposits at JP Morgan. So if you open an account at the Fed, then what you call what, what what you call the numbers in that account are reserves. But the thing is, very few entities have the privilege of opening an account at the Fed. Basically, you have to be a commercial bank. So when you're looking at credit risk-free uh, things to hold, reserves are definitely one of them. It's just that most people don't have access to them because they don't have an account at the Fed. So the next best thing is a U.S. Treasury security. Now, because anyone can hold a U.S. Treasury security, it's uh, it's it's widely available, and so it can move to more users, to more people. And so in a sense, um, it, it can be more widely circulated uh, as uh, as suggested. Yeah, I think that's what people need to understand. Not, not that they have to agree or disagree with an argument, but when you hear the argument of quantitative easing, as an example, just being an asset swap, or when you hear maybe an extreme argument that I think uh, Mr. Singh would make that uh, quantitative easing is actually taking liquidity out of the system. Um, to to uh, to understand that, you you have to realize that moneyness component of treasuries, uh, even relative to bank reserves. And thank you for explaining that. Yeah, so yeah, you're right. So quantitative easing at a high level, so the Fed goes and buys U.S. treasuries. How does it pay for those purchases? It prints reserves. So on a high level, as we noted before, it's an asset swap. Um, Fed takes out treasuries and returns reserves in exchange. However, because reserves can only be held by those with a Fed account, uh, in a sense, it could be construed, it can be interpreted to be uh, reducing the amount of uh, liquid safe assets in the financial system. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so now let's kind of uh, look at the plumbing through a little bit different angle um, because I've had quite a few conversations on the mechanics of quantitative easing. Nobody knows it better than you do. And there's some confusion as to when the Fed is buying treasuries, how are they doing that? And who are they buying those treasuries from? Does the New York uh, Fed's trading desk, can they choose who to buy them from? Or are they just buying them from primary dealers who buy them on the open market? So then the bigger question is who is actually selling those treasuries. And uh, as you've pointed out many times, I've pointed out on this channel, that matters a lot. Uh, Because if uh, a bank is buying from a bank, then there's no impact on M2. And then we could have a further conversation about the the aggregate balance sheet there. Um, But if a bank is buying from a non-bank, then it's definitely going to impact M2, regardless of whether that bank is JP Morgan or the Federal Reserve. So the way that the Fed operates is that it does its market operations always with primary dealers. So, right. and I'll take a step back and describe how the treasury market structure works to begin with. The treasury market structure is basically, um, it's a dealer centered. So for example, let's say that I'm selling an Apple stock. Well, what happens is that there are very, there are many different exchanges that where you can, where you can sell your stock. So you would say, you would post on the exchange, I'm selling this much stock for this price. And someone else maybe will take the other side. It's different for the treasury market, where when you want to sell something, what you would do if you are an investor is you would call up a securities dealer. And you would say that, you know, I want to sell this or I want to buy that. And they give you a quote and you can call different dealers. 
and they would all give you a quote. So it's done, you know, over the counter. There's no exchange here. Mm, okay. okay, that's one thing. That's the this is the secondary market after the treasury. Yeah, yes, that, that's, that's right. That's okay. right. Uh, well, you, yeah. So when the Fed wants to, uh, let's say, buy treasuries, what they do is they buy through primary dealers. They do all their market operations with the primary dealers. But I would think of the primary dealers more as a conduit, like a broker, uh, rather than someone who's an end investor. Because at the end of the day, the prim- the, uh, the primary dealer will buy from from the Fed and then just you know sell to someone else uh, or vice versa, stuff like that. So they're, they're just like a conduit. Okay, so uh, let's say that the Fed uh, wants to wants to buy securities. Uh, the way that this is done is that it's done through something called reverse auction. So uh, what the Fed would do is say, you know, I'm thinking about buying this stuff, you know, come and make me an offer. And you have all the primary dealers go and make an offer. So the Fed then will take a look at these offers and they have a very simple algorithm that calculates which of these offers are good or bad and so forth. Mm-hmm. And they'll take offers that are that are OK. So the way this is evaluated, one hand, where where are where, where are treasuries trading at now? OK, so it's relative to market. And it will also evaluate it relative to model. They'll have a model where they think, you know, uh, what is um, quote unquote fair value or something like that. So they're basically go run through their very simple, very simple uh, estimate as to whether or not this uh, offer from the primary dealer is worth accepting. And uh, if it is, they'll accept it. If it's not, they'll reject it. And so that that's how they do it. It's trying th- their attempt to try to um, basically buy at market prices or at least not get ripped off. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options, Jason Hartman, real estate, and Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of -of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow Rebel Capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. Okay. Now, before we go any further, are the primary dealers that they are interacting with, are they banks or non-banks or both? They're both. They're both. Oh, that's what I thought. Okay. That's so, what I thought. So then how, the, oh, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to ask so, you, when those primary dealers are effectively just flipping treasuries to the Fed, uh, the question becomes, okay, where are they buying them? And yeah. if they're buying them from a non-bank, assuming that that primary dealer is under the umbrella of J.P. Morgan, then most likely that's going to have a positive impact on M2 money supply. If you're just looking at it strictly in terms of... Absolutely. You can uh, see that in the graphs really easy, right? You can look yeah. at M2 exploding higher in 2020, right? right? That is buying tremendous amounts of treasuries. M2 is going to the moon. Uh, for the most part, uh, when the Fed is doing QE, the all the um, it makes the M2 money supply 
go higher um, because the seller is usually a non-bank at the end of the day. The, the seller of the treasury to the primary dealer that flips it. Yes. Yes. Okay, great. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. So then I think the argument there would be, well, Joseph, my goodness gracious, if what the Fed is doing is uh, at the end of the day, increasing M2 money supply, then that means that there's more currency units that are out there chasing goods and services. Therefore, that's going to be an inflationary tailwind. And I think what you would say is, well, yes and no, because it goes back to our original conversation about it is true that M2 goes up, but the aggregate balance sheet hasn't gone up at all. And you're just trading M2 money supply, at very low velocity for a treasury with zero velocity. So <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, we've yeah. done QE for decades, not just the US, but across the world, right? ECB, Japan, and so forth. And it, you know, you don't really uh, they, they were praying for inflation for like a decade after the yeah. financial crises and expanding the balance sheet and M2 significantly. And it just didn't really matter. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So now let's uh, take it back to the, um, well, let's go over the debt crisis and then we'll get to the dollar because this is kind of uh, topic du jour lately uh, that the government is running all of these deficits. Nobody disagrees that the government deficits are going to continue to go higher and higher and higher, probably a lot higher than, was it the CBO, than their yeah. projections. Uh, the, so we're going to have just a deluge of supply. The question becomes, what happens to demand? And so I, I think you're going to have a very nuanced angle on this. Most people don't. Most people just look at the amount of treasuries that are being held by the PBOC and just use that as a proxy as overall treasury demand. And it's like, well, uh, th th there's, there's, there's more buyers out there <laughs> than the PBOC, just FYI. So um, how do you see this kind of debt crisis playing out? Not in terms of the government spending more money, therefore increasing velocity and all this stuff, but as far as the overall debt or demand for U.S. debt becoming a problem. So I think it's never going to be a problem because at the end of the day, the Fed can buy it all. Obviously, they've been buying treasuries for, in size for, uh, for a long time, right? So it's never going to be a problem. Now, before they step in and then be uh, you know, a persistent buyer, uh, we don't, I mean, we don't necessarily have to get there. But um, I think that there, there is a real risk that going forward, there's going to be you know, less confidence in uh, the U.S. government. And so that could lead to less demand for treasuries and that could make interest rates go higher. Now, if you're looking just at foreigners, well, you know, on, honestly, foreign holdings of treasuries ha haven't really increased all that much over the past decade. So as a percentage of holders of treasuries, they've been steadily shrinking. So let's say pre-great financial crises, the foreigners were a big part of the uh, investor base in U.S. treasuries. Today, uh, not, not so much. Now, when I think about how to uh, think about treasury demand, again, at, at the end of the day, a lot of it has to do with confidence in the U.S. government perceptions uh, as to how the U.S. is managed. You know, just like if you buy, a, um, let's say, a company's debt, you want to look at how they're managed, and so it is for U.S. Treasuries. Difference being, of course, that U.S. government always has a printing press and can never default, but then maybe if they issue a lot, maybe things 
become inflationary, then you know maybe your value is worth less. So uh, it's it's a slightly different treatment. Now, I my sense is that um, there's a big divide in society across age as to how people perceive how the the U.S. government functions. Um, for example, uh, look at what's happening in uh, the U.S. election right now. You have you know, people, the Biden people, and you have the Trump people, and they they basically have very different worldviews. They get different information, and their worldviews are often in conflict. And just as it is like that, and so uh, you can have very different views as to how the U.S. is doing. You can have, you know, maybe more boomer-like views where, you know, U.S. is a world power, great place, uh, everything's managed well, I'm not too worried about this. Or you can go towards the other hand and maybe have a more of a pessimistic view that we are heading into a tremendous crisis because our deficit is under, out of control. Maybe you see that, um, perceive that there are a lot of things that are going wrong with how the country is managed. And so there are very many different perceptions here. And that that's going to be a confusing thing for the market to work out going forward. Uh, my sense is that this uh, boomer view becomes less influential going forward as the boomers move on. And um, as I think people who are more clear eyed see that there is a very serious problem in how the U.S. is being managed. So I think that going forward, interest rates are going to rise steadily because more and more people are going to be concerned with this, uh, this situation, this persistent deficit spending, afraid of the inflationary impacts that it will have. Uh, at the end of the day, if the market becomes to panic, the Fed would just step in. So I wouldn't think of it as an unsolvable problem. Right. The way I look at that, Joseph, and I think I've got a lot of, uh, well, a bit of an edge here, if we want to use that term, in that I don't spend much time in the United States. You know this. So I look at what has happened in Colombia and the inflation rate here, because we use the Colombian peso, and I see what's happened to the local inflation rate over the last, let's say, two or three years. But then I also see what has happened with the peso relative to the dollar. And I, I don't know, I haven't checked on it probably three or four months. But uh, a while back, it was at a level where the dollar had appreciated so greatly against the peso that even though we had goods and services go up here, the dollar appreciated to a greater degree, and therefore the dollar appreciated in value relative to mm -hmm. local goods and services, even though it was depreciating in value relative to goods and services in the United States. Uh, a more clear-cut example would probably be Japan, mm -hmm. right? I think, and you probably know this better than I would, but maybe two years ago, the yen was trading at like, a, what, 100? Uh, something about maybe 110? And now it's up near 140, 150? Oh, 150, 150, yeah. The, the, the Japanese government is... Uh panicking a little bit, giving some verbal warnings uh, today. Yeah. So if you're a Japanese investor, a huge pen uh, pension fund or a big financial institution, most of your input costs are denominated in, in yen, in the local currency. And it is true that they have had inflation there, but, but not that much. You know, it's been maybe 2%, 3%, which is basically hyperinflation for Japan, but, uh, <laughs> but, but again, relative to the appreciation that the dollar has had against the yen, that that's peanuts. So if you're someone that has been holding treasuries as a Japanese investor, I mean, this has been a windfall 
for you in the sense that you're getting this 5% interest rate, let's say. But on top of that, the, the dollar asset that you have has appreciated in value by, let's just say, you know, 10, 15% relative to the stuff that you need to buy. And so you're seeing that and you've got that recency bias. And that's kind of one of the components of demand. And that's why uh, I don't know that, that, that I think the government spending is the real problem. But I don't know that we're going to have a big issue as far as the demand for that debt, at least in the next, let's say, three years, five years, something like that. Another thing that I look at is just the curve. And um, I'd love to get your view on this, but I look at the 10-year trading at, let's say, you know, it's gone up over the last couple of days, but let's say right around 4%. And I see the overnight rate, Fed funds, IOR at 5.25%. I mean, that's 100 basis points right there. I mean, that tells me that there is massive demand, epic demand for the long end of the curve. I think there's an argument for the short end because prior to the debt ceiling, you know, the bills were trading, what, 60 basis points under reverse repo. And then when you go back to Mr. Singh's argument, you see how important rehypothecation is to the global monetary system. And just, you know, you're scratching your head and saying, my goodness, if there was a demand problem for treasuries, we probably wouldn't have to rehypothecate them. <laughs> so uh, I, I know I just said a lot, but but how do you that that's kind of I, I take your view and I take all these views, but I also include that demand component from having an insight as a foreigner looking at this from the outside. Uh, looking in. Uh, well, that's really good that those guys like treasuries because they're going to have all they can eat. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they're gonna have a buffet. <laughs> so um, I would. So I think it's really important to look at markets through through a you know the lens of other people. Now, for example, from the lens of the Japanese. Now, one of the reasons why U.S. asset markets, not just treasuries but even equities, do well, is because if you are a foreigner and you buy a U.S. asset. It's not just whether or not, say, the S&P 500 goes up or down. There's also a currency element to it as well. And so if you're buying the S&P 500 and you are a, a Japanese investor, you're making money because the S&P 500 goes up and you're making money because the dollar is appreciating. It's a right. double play. And you can have cycles like that that are basically self-reinforcing. So uh, one way you can think about this is that, you know, Maybe there's a lot of foreign capital that, that is coming into the U.S. and keeping U.S. assets buoyant. We have relatively high interest rates. Dollar continues to appreciate. So it's a, it's a double play for you. So that matters as well. Um, when I think about the, the signs of you know, treasury supply and demand, uh, I would look at rates, for example, the interest rates. I think that's one way to look at that. Uh, the way that I would measure this is um, rates with respect to uh, the expected path of policy. And uh, you can think of that uh, like a swap spread, basically. So basically, uh, you would have, through the futures market, an estimate as to where the uh, Fed is going to have their policy rate going forward for the next right. you know, five, 10 years, and then compare that to where the treasuries are trading. And that, that's, a, that's one way to partial out the, uh, the effect of Fed policy. Because when you think about longer-dated yields, Part of it is influenced by the Fed policy. And so maybe declines in yields uh, are simply because the market thinks that the Fed is going to cut rates soon. And it seems right now that that is playing a role. 
because the market, as it has been over the past year, is always eager to price in Fed rate cuts. So what I think is happening is that so we've had a bond bull market for two generations. And in a bull market, everyone is a genius. And so you have a, basically a lot of institutional knowledge that's telling you, you know, boomer wisdom, uh, U.S. is well managed. Everything will continue as it was before. Inflation will go back to 2%. Uh, bonds are great buy. You know, so after all, I bought them for two generations. My grandpa bought them and look, we did really well. And I think that's a mindset that's going to take time to change. Mm. I think we're in the process of changing it now. So as I recall, last quarter, we have treasury, 10-year treasury yields go up to 5%. Now, I think there are many people there who uh, would not believe that would happen just uh, just just a year ago, actually. So yeah, uh, I think we are in the process of this mindset changing. And you know, a lot of people, like people who listen to this channel, uh, are a bit more sensitive to changes in the world. And so they're a bit ahead. Uh, but I think that that's, that's what's going to be happening for the coming decade. Mm. Okay, great. So how do the bank regulations impact your view of kind of the macro environment? And so what I'm referring to specifically like Basel III or SLR, because we talked about how, you know, the Fed's balance sheet might not matter as much as people uh, think it does. And when you go back prior to 2008, I don't think that's even debatable because they're basically, I mean, they're effectively zero reserves. Uh, in the system when you look at how few there actually were compared to global dollar M2. Uh, but now, you know, they say, okay, it's it's a different ballgame here. We're in a excess or what do they call it? A something reserve uh, uh, environment. And we do have these regulations that may constrain uh, the overall banks. So can you give me your view on those regulations, if they are constraints, if they aren't, and then maybe we can kind of unpack what those regulations actually mean and try to put them in simple terms. So we have to be careful to not think that the future will look like the past. And one other way of looking at this is we want to be careful not to be fighting the last war. So the last war in people in public policy, in, in financial market policy was the 2008 great financial crisis. It was basically a banking crisis, right? So at the end of the day, a lot of banks you know, bought a whole lot of stuff that, that um, was not worth as much as they thought it was, and they were sitting on big losses. They were basically insolvent, and so there was a huge run uh, on the financial sector. So that was really bad. And in response to that, the regulators, not just in the U.S., but throughout the world, passed a lot of regulations that really, really, really tightened up uh, on banks a lot. In fact, for the biggest banks, the rules are really stringent, and it's made them really boring or quasi-socialized businesses. Now, it uh, the rules basically put a whole bunch of constraints as to what a bank can invest in, uh, put a whole bunch of costs uh, for a bank if it invests in things that are too risky or if it gets too big, and made sure that a bank did not have uh, borrowed too much flighty money and so forth. And so at the end of the day, it really made the banking system much, much safer than before. And the way that you can see that it's worked is look at 2020. We have this huge, huge uh, crash in the financial markets worldwide. Uh, but at the end of the day, the banking sector, totally fine, right? Totally, totally fine. Equity market crashed, treasury market crashed, uh, corporate debt crashed. 
and uh, the banking system was totally okay. Now, because I realized this, and uh, you know, you can look at what's happening in, let's say, the regional banks, and you can know that it's going to affect some individual banks, but it's not going to be something that's systemic, simply because uh, the whole regulatory structure has basically quasi-socialized it, made everything, you know, really boring. And I, I think it's something that happens to many industries, actually, once the government gets involved. So it's made it safer in your view, but has it made it less efficient? I think it's made it more difficult for it to perform its job. That's, yeah, that's kind of what I'm getting at. That's its job, basically, to make loans to people. And in the real economy, so we can produce in the more real economy. But, but that's okay, because, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know where, where there's a will, there's a way. So banks, let's say they don't want to make as many loans, or maybe they make loans at higher interest rates because their own costs have gone up. So what mm-hmm. happens, you have all these other entities pop up to take their place. One of the big ones that we've been hearing a lot about is private credit. What's private credit? Private credit is just basically uh, basically a whole bunch of rich people pull their money together and they make loans directly to businesses. So they are like a bank, but they are not regulated as a bank. And so these guys, they're growing tremendously. Now, let's look at something more close to home, mortgages. Uh, so banks don't really organ- originate that many mortgages. Uh, most mortgages are actually originated by non-bank lenders. Think uh, Rocket Mortgage or, or something like that. These guys, they're not banks, uh, but they make loans. And they're there eating the bank's lunch because they are regulated uh, in a different way. Okay. Yeah. So, and, and the thing, as you were saying that, the thing that was coming to my mind is I just read an article the other day about these uh, uh, buy now, pay later I think. And this is kind of what all the, ironically enough, all the banks are lending to these shadow banks, if you want to call them that. And then they're going on and then piling all of this risk uh, on their balance sheet. And for some reason, the banks, <laughs> think that, that doesn't impact them, right? But I guess this uh, leads us to our last topic of the day, which is commercial real estate. What's your view on what's happening there? And how that might impact the not just the regional banks, but if it increases risk within the system, that might not bring down a JP Morgan, but that might make them less willing to create more loans, which might uh, see bank credit kind of flattening out, which could be a, a deflationary pressure. Absolutely. If the banks and the banks have been significantly reducing the amount of loans they make. So if they have credit problems, they'll definitely reduce the amount of lending further. So when I think about commercial real estate, of course, as we all know, commercial real estate is an umbrella term that covers many different assets with many different supply and demand dynamics. You have multifamily, you have, uh, let's say, hospital, you have industrial space, um, you have data centers, and of course, you have stuff like office space. So These sectors, uh, broadly speaking, they're doing well, but there are a few that are doing very poorly. And as we all know, downtown office space is doing very poorly. The reason for this is just because of structural changes in how the economy works. We have work from home now, and so people don't like to go back to the office. And so all this expensive office space that was counting on, um, let's say, companies continuing to to work there, employees continuing to come into the office that many actually perceived to be a safe investment actually basically overnight turned out to be uh, worth a lot less than before. Simply because, worth less. 
Yeah, well, worth, yeah, worth less. <laughs> worth less or worthless. <laughs> <laughs> Especially in San Francisco, right? Right, right. So, so it, it's a, it, it, I don't think it has anything to do with, you know, uh, like, uh, let's say, regulation or anything like that. It just has to do with a change in the culture. And stuff like that happens, right? Sometimes it's, it's like the uh, invention of, uh, uh, you know, the printing press or invention or something like that. You have these big tr- changes in the, in, the, uh, in the world or invention of the car. You don't need horseshoes anymore, right? You have, uh, you have cars now. So you have these big structural changes and sometimes people get caught offside. Mm-hmm. Now, the important thing is how is that risk distributed in, in the banking system? Is it really concentrated? Is it diffuse? Or, or, um, or how is it doing? So one thing I note is that it's really not what you, uh, so if you know a risk is there and you prepare for it, then it's much less likely for it to be severe. Now we've known that there are these commercial real estate problems for you know a year now. So I think a lot of people have had time to find out a way to, to work it out. So it's not a surprise anymore. So I think, it's, I think that's a, a big advantage going forward. Now, according to banking data that I've seen, now overall, the amount of, uh, let's say, potential bad assets in, is not large in the big banks. It's not large in the medium-sized banks. Uh, but it seems to be largely held in the very small banks that basically no one has ever heard of. So we have about 4,000 banks in the U.S. And so among those 4,000, I'm sure most people have, have not heard of uh, 95% of them. And so some of those banks are going to have concentrated portfolios potentially in these sensitive assets. And so they're not going to do well. But it's, I think it's very much going to be an individual story. I'm sorry to cut you off there, but what do you think about the BTFP expiring? That that shocked me the other day. I could not believe that the Fed did that. Uh, and well, I don't know if to push people uh, to the discount window or there's some sort of PR play, but I I just thought of that and I I, I just wanted to um I just wanted to say that really quick uh, so I didn't forget. So the BTFPA is expiring. So that 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 um that announcement actually had two things in it. One is that it's going to expire in March as uh okay. It was initially a one-year facility, so people weren't sure if they were going to renew. So it was going to expire as originally scheduled. It could have been renewed, but it wasn't. And the second thing is that they raise the interest rate on those loans uh, to not less than interest on reserves. Right. So that tells me that part of the reason why they're not renewing it is that they it was perceived to be basically a giveaway to banks. I think there was some articles about that in the major me- in the legacy media outlets. So basically, um, it was bad optics. The, the interest rate that was on those loans was a lot less than the banks could receive uh, on reserves. So in a sense, the banks were literally being paid to borrow from there, from that facility. Now, I don't think the Fed wants to be perceived to be uh, just giving free money to banks, right? And so I think that that kind of uh, encouraged them to, to not renew the facility. There was enormous amounts of participation heading up, uh, I'd say, the past few months. And I think Lastly, it was about 160 billion dollars. Yeah. So, if you're if you're the Fed, you don't really know if people are borrowing because they're in serious trouble, or it's because the Fed is basically paying you to borrow. Uh, I'm guessing that they were getting the sense that more people were participating simply because uh, the rate was so advantageous, and so they just kind of turned that thing off. And do you think now, from their you standpoint, raised- they're thinking, okay, and if we were wrong, then we can just go ahead and flip the switch and turn it back on again? They could. But there's something else that's going on as well. So okay. there's another article in Bloomberg where 
banking regulators, not just the Fed, but the FDIC uh, and the OCC, they want to force all banks to tap the discount window once yeah. a year. Yeah. What they want to do is they want to normalize the discount window. So in a sense, you can think of the, okay, so they're trying to like people think of the discount window as a BTFP uh, that you can tap anytime. Of course, the rate is not as good, but you can tap it anytime you want. So it's a way to normalize banks to just borrow from the Fed through the discount window. And if you have that, if you have the discount window and you will have a culture that people are willing to use it, then you really don't have to worry about liquidity for banks. But they're not getting 100 cents on the dollar. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> That's a big deal, right? You know what? Um, so they we're not getting 100 cents on, on the dollar. On the, so they're not being able to par, borrow equal to par of the asset. But there's something else as well. The discount window can accept uh, a wide range of collateral. So okay. even if you have a corporate loan or you know just whatever mortgage, you can pledge it to the discount window. It it's actually uh, you can pledge basically almost anything there. It's much it's much more accessible in that sense compared to okay. Um, so they're thinking they're the thinking that that'll balance it out. The fact that they're not able to get a hundred cents on the dollar. So uh, I I. That that uh, special thing of the BTFP is highly unusual. So it's really more more in line with let's say historical practice to be able to borrow against the market value of the collateral rather than the par value. Yeah, yeah. I'm just I'm trying to put myself in the position of a Fed official or Powell saying, okay, well I'm going to turn off this BTFP. I don't know if this is really bailing out banks right now. If this is going to create uh, additional risk or if they're just using it as an arbitrage but just in case they're uh they're really at risk well then i'm gonna try to destigmatize the discount window and even though they're not getting 100 cents on the dollar hopefully it'll be the same type of bailout because they're just able to use a lot more of the assets that are on their balance sheet so even if they're not getting 100 cents on the dollar it still basically saves them. Uh, so let's say that you're a bank with a hundred dollar balance sheet, and you need some extra liquidity, right? So maybe you need an extra five dollars. Then, in, in theory, you should have, you know, a hundred dollars of assets you could pledge to borrow to make that five five dollar um, deficit. Uh, I think it should be more than enough. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, Joseph, thanks a lot for the conversation, buddy. I appreciate your time. Uh, I just I mean, I am such a macro nerd that I just really, really get excited <laughs> about the opportunity to talk about all of this kind of nerdy plumbing type stuff. So thanks again for coming on. For the viewers who want to find out more about what you do, where can they go? Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here. This is a great channel. You have some of the best people in macro. Now, if you're interested in learning more about uh, my work, guys should check out my YouTube channel, Joseph Wang, where I post weekly videos on uh, my take on what happened in the markets the last week. And of course, I'm on Twitter. My handle is FedGuy12. And your website. You want, and what's your FedGuy website? FedGuy.com. FedGuy.com, of course. I have a subscription service that I provide to my readers that I offer a, a bit deeper insights is, into what I think is happening in the markets. It's a weekly awesome. publication. Awesome. I'd like to remind everyone that Joseph is going to be a speaker at Rebel Capitalist Live May 31st through June 2nd in Orlando. We're super excited about that. So you've got to go to rebelcapitalistlive.com, get your tickets so you can meet Joseph face to face and uh, just listen to some more of his incredible insights. So Joseph, thanks a lot, buddy. Uh, looking forward to Rebel Capitalist Live. I'll see you all there.